from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 105 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host, producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. So do you have your tickets for Toy Story 4? Oh, that's a sore subject. I actually don't currently have my uh, I don't currently have my tickets, but that is just because I haven't decided quite when I'm going to see it yet. Uh, I I don't remember if I've talked about it. I'm sure I have and everyone's going to be screaming right now, but I enjoy <laughs> seeing movies in uh, Dolby. Is mm-hmm. like my number one main one. If I can see them at Dolby, in Dolby at Disney Springs, that's like my ideal movie experience. But unfortunately, I forgot to get them when they came out uh, on sale. So by the time I looked, basically the entire opening weekend was all filled up. And I, it, it's one of those movies I can't tell myself whether or not I need to see it with the best sound and the best visual quality because uh, it's. It's definitely not going to be an action movie on the level of like John Wick, but uh, but do I still want to wait to see it in like the best format I possibly can? So because of that, I haven't bought tickets yet. But uh, there, there's a couple of movie theaters around our our area where I can get tickets the day of in really great seats still, and and I'll be able to enjoy it. So I, I'll probably do that. But I'm running really behind on movies, so. <laughs> That's uh, that's not helping anything. Yeah, I bought mine a week before its opening, and only one other seat was sold at that point. <laughs> so yeah. I'm right in the center of the theater. That so. is the downside of living in Orlando. So I'm <laughs> deep down, I'm bitter that uh, I'm not going to throw any of my coworkers under the bus, but because uh, I would never do that. But I would. We did receive an invitation to see the 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 premiere of Toy Story 4 down here in in Walt Disney World during a, a press junket weekend that they threw where uh, they ended up having interviews with Tom Hanks, Tim Allen, Annie Potts, uh, Christina Hendricks, Tony Hale and Keanu Reeves and uh, and the the coworker again will who will remain nameless Corey Martin uh, <laughs> his can, initials are Corey Martin yeah his initials are Corey, <laughs> Mar- Corey Martin don't send him messages I I think I already guilted him enough that weekend uh, when when I finally was like how did we not get invited everyone else that we see at these events is there and then sure enough he looked through and he's like yep it's in my spam folder from from May 10th and it's like I had the chance to be in the same room just feet away from Tom Hanks and you took that away from me Uh, it was definitely the most privileged moment of my life where I I realized I was getting upset about not having the chance to see a celebrity and then I I stepped back and I said 
I've got to really re- reassess my life if I'm getting upset about little stuff like that because there is so much more in the world that I should be worried about than <laughs> being yeah. in the same room as Tom Hanks. But I had the chance to see the movie already, and uh, it didn't happen. So now I will just find the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the advanced reviews are really good. Yeah, so 100% still on yeah, Rotten I'm Tomatoes. Like- yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So. Oh no, no one of my uh, one of my close friends. It's I think I've mentioned her before. I'm not going to give out her name because I don't want to want people to barrage her or anything or or her uh, her boyfriend. And they're just both wonderful. But um, she's she's been on Toy Story four and sharing little not not secrets, but she's been talking now for six months about how how it good it's going to be, and it has had me so excited along the way. And I, I cannot wait to see it. I, I, I know at the end of the day, most of the Toy Story movies, all of the Toy Story movies are basically the same plot. That toys, toys get lost, help find toys, come together, share sentimental moment, move yeah, on. But, but it's, I'm st- it doesn't change how much I'm looking forward to it. No, and the stories are well told. The characters are well developed. The animation gets better every single time. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's they're not retreads. No, they yeah. always find at least one twist in there mm-hmm. to to mm-hmm. really freshen it up and make it make it feel justified in that way. And yeah. whether it's new characters or a new part of the story you didn't know before, and um, just uh, just from the people that I know that did get to go to that preview and other people who have attended previews, they just absolutely loved it. So I cannot be. I cannot be more excited about it. Well, you know, speaking of Pixar, I when I was talking about the Walt Disney Family Museum a while back, I said one of the talks I was going to was by Michael Giacchino. And yeah. he and unfortunately he had to cancel and what he wrote a very nice note to the museum that who shared it with all the ticket holders and saying that a project he was working on was supposed to be finished in the fall, but unfortunately it's going to extend until December, which means it's not possible for him to come to the museum mm-hmm. for the talk. And he's very apologetic. And it was very nice. And, you know, those things happen. So the museum very promptly, uh, you know, refunded our money. And Michael Giacchino said he hopes he'll be able to reschedule it. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's, you know, that happens. And so I didn't think anything more of it. Michael Giacchino felt so bad for everybody that held a ticket. He got sheet music from Up and autographed it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? So mine is waiting for me at the museum. (laughs) Now, I know you have children and grandchildren, but... uh, but (laughs) That's being framed, and that is being hung up. You know, I don't. If if you ever decide you would like to part with it in the future, uh, remember remember your your good friend and producer whose wife walked down the aisle to married life at at our wedding and such. So I'm not I'm not, I'm not trying to badger you, but in 20 years when you're ready to part with it. Yeah, but but isn't that nice? He did not need to do that. Not I at mean, all. At all. I mean, I that just shows what 
I don't know. What a swell guy. I mean, you know, how considerate. If you've ever watched okay. any um, any special features from the movies mm-hmm. that he, he's been a composer on, and they have behind the scenes of him uh, him while he's working, it, it he is he is a stand-up, stand-up guy. Um, I want to say it was Leonard Malton's podcast a couple of years ago, had an interview with him and, like, traced him through his roots. Uh, starting off when he was just a composer for video games, uh, <laughs> like that's how he got his start on on Call of Duty. I want to say was one of his like first big breakouts. He had he had worked before that, but uh, that that kind of just paved the way for his his career and all these stepping stones and that got him into rings with Steven Spielberg and that got him into rings with J.J. Abrams who then helped elevate him as well. And then he, he met Brad Bird and got him in on The Incredibles. And, I mean, there's been no turning back from him. And I understand why. He is he is an astounding composer. Um, oh, he is. Just, uh, just one I of love the best. Lis- I, love, I listen to film soundtracks of his because yeah. the music's so beautiful. Yeah, no, I it's I he's in my top three. I mean, I think my film composers there are so many good ones, and like of course John Williams is incredible. But mm-hmm. I think I think my my next two, which kind of bounce around between two and three, are are probably uh, Michael Giacchino and and Thomas Newman, who mm-hmm. also has roots in Pixar with yeah. with Wall-E and, <laughs> and Saving Mr. Banks then too. So there's I love film scores. Yeah, I do too, actually. But I am so excited. I thought I have to bring something to put that in, so I so it doesn't get yeah. destroyed. So I have to figure that out. Yes, don't <laughs> let anything happen to that. No. So anyway, oh, and I will be at the uh, Walt Disney Family Museum on Saturday, June twenty second, for a talk on the beauty and legacy of Fantasia with hmm. composer and conductor Fabrizio Mancinelli. Which I'm sure I did not say his name properly, <laughs> but uh, anyway, he's uh, so I'm very excited about that. Which and that will be very fortuitous for an upcoming episode of um, connecting with Walt that yes. I am already uh, working on. So uh, yeah, I anyway. believe we're probably getting close to Fantasia. Well, I think we're pretty much there. <laughs> if you picked up on all the hints yeah. from our last episode of Mickey Mouse, yeah. So anyway, so I'm um, yeah, so I'm very excited about that. So if you're at the museum that day, please be sure you say hello. Don't be shy. But I'm clutching that sheet music <laughs> to my chest. <laughs> so, like I anyway. said, twenty years from now, just think <laughs> about it. Remember me. I will think of that. Oh, and there's there's another Pixar film. Remember me? Yep, full circle. <laughs> okay. So, well, since we're talking about films, let's just get right into it. On Tuesday, June twenty fifth, twenty nineteen, the next installment of Turner Classic Movies, Treasures from the Disney Vault, will be broadcast. And in our last episode, we talked about the lineup from eight p.m. through ten twenty five p.m. And in this episode, we are going to discuss the rest of the lineup. Uh, this month's theme, of course, is themes, detectives, espionage, and spies. 
So, Craig, did you want to refresh our listeners' memory on what they can look forward to viewing on June 25th? Yeah, absolutely. So if you remember from last episode, we talked about at 8 o'clock p.m., you will have the Moon Spinners from 1964. At 10.15, there is Bone Bandit from 1948. And then we ended off our show with uh, the 1025 movie, The Littlest Horse Thieves. And then starting at 1.15 a.m., I apologize there, I almost said 11. 1.15 a.m. is The Robber Kitten from 1935, followed by The North Avenue Irregulars from 1979. That's at 1.30. At 3.15 a.m., we have Emile and the Detectives from 1964. And at 5 a.m., we have Never a Dull Moment from 1968. And I'm not going to make any Never a Dull Moment jokes this week. Last week was good enough. We'll have plenty of them when we get to that film. Uh, Well, I mean, in in every show we do, there's never a dull moment. That's true. So, so Craig, eight fifteen, or I'm sorry, one fifteen in the morning. What are you snacking on and drinking and all that? Uh, I mean, I do gremlin gremlin rules, so I can't even say my own joke. I screw it up. Uh, I do gremlin rules, so I don't what? eat after midnight because I do not want to see what I become. Uh, so I <laughs> oh. have. I have to imagine I'm I'm sipping on probably a, a bottle of of uh, Glenlivet if I'm if I'm going to be completely honest, but that's a good way to to kind of cap off the night and help oh. me fall asleep and DVR the last two movies of the night. <laughs> I'm probably eating ice cream at this point. Oh, there you go. But it's it's a lot earlier your time. Or does it does it air at the exact same time on your coast? I don't think we've ever talked about that. Um, I'm trying to remember because I, I record these. Yeah. I th- no, I think they start earlier. Yeah. I mean, it, it would make sense. So. Like, I don't see why they would they would try to alter it. So for yours, mm-hmm. it would make more sense if it started at five. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah. Hmm. You'll have so to. Re- a lot of times. That's right. Because when I started watching some of these, I was make I was eating dinner. <laughs> so, yeah. The last time. So, yeah. Well, you'll have to report back after this one and say if it starts three hours earlier for you. Because I mean, that, oh my gosh, I'm going to just go to the West Coast for all these. I can stay up from five a.m. <laughs> till uh, two hours seven. I can stay up from five a.m. till four a.m. That's easy. Yeah, that's sure. No problem. <laughs> you do that anyway. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we welcome in the morning with the 1935 Silly Symphony, The Robber Kitten. This cartoon short is based on a 19th century children's story purportedly authored by Robert Mitchell Ballantyne under the pseudonym Comus. In the original story, the unnamed kitten protagonist tells his mother of his plan to become a thief before leaving home in search of victims. His first criminal act is to behead a rooster by gunshot, then takes his body for dinner. After a failed attempt to rob a female cat, he shoots at her only to miss. He then happens upon a canine highwayman who appears friendly, then turns on him in a violent assault. A friendly owl convinces the kitten to give up his life of crime and return home. And after a tearful reunion with his mother, he decides to have his sword and pistol thrown into the fire. Well, the story outline for the Walt Disney's version of the robber kitten is a bit different. And it was completed in September of 1934. A surviving early script for the film, presumably by story director Bill Cottrell, shows the kitten's original name as Ferdinand. 
And in the cartoon, the, uh, though, the kitten is named Ambrose, but he changes his name to Butch after his mother interrupts his highwayman play-acting with his toys by calling him down for his bath. So animation began on October 9th, 1934, and was completed on February 19th, 1935. Technicolor photography took place from March 5th through the 20th of 1935. The cartoon was directed by Dave Hand, and several animators contributed to the film. Um, mainly, they were mainly cast by sequence, as we've talked about in other um, other uh, shorts. So, um, the animators are Bob Wickersham, Hardy Gramatke, Marvin Woodard, Ham Lusk, and Bill Roberts. So, Wickersham animates the introductory sequences of. Ambrose, and he's voiced by Shirley Reed, um, from his playing as a stagecoach robber with his toys up until his decision to run from away from home as he sneaks downstairs. Hardy Gramatke handles the sequence when Ambrose avoids his bath and pours a jar of cookies into his um, sort of bundle haversack. After his announcement, no more baths for me, he jumps out a window and lands into a rain barrel full of water. Gramatke continues the sequence when Ambrose rides along on his hobby horse, but is called by his mother, raising a scrub brush. The stubborn kitten quickly brings his head up in defiance and turns away from her into the forest to embark upon his life of crime. Ham Lusk then animated a large portion of the robber kitten, nearly three minute, minutes of it, when Ambrose encounters Dirty Bill, who's voiced by Billy Bletcher, a real criminal wanted for robbery. In Lusk's sequence, Ambrose pokes one of his pop guns into the behind of Dirty Bill, who reaches for his nearest weapons before the little kitten's voice cracks in the midst of his threat. After they introduce themselves, Dirty Bill invites Ambrose to sit down with him on a log. This sequence includes a brief song, Dirty Bill from Cootie Hill, written by Frank Churchill, which deepens their friendship. But then Dirty Bill asks Ambrose if he managed to pull off any burglaries. The little kitten recounts his play-acting stagecoach robbery seen earlier in the film. He tells the story as if it were a real robbery, and this is shown in a fantasy sequence animated by Bill Roberts. At the end of his story, Ambrose lets out a yell, a loud um, Tarzan yell. That is provided by Clarence Nash. Of course, we know him as the voice of Donald Duck. Robert's animation continues and Ambrose shows Dirty Bill his swag bag of loot. Dirty Bill thinks it is filled with treasure and riches, but it's really the bag of cookies Ambrose took before leaving home. Bill is overcome with snarling, drooling avarice, and Ambrose, now realizing he's in a bit of trouble, confesses it's just a bag of cookies, but Dirty Bill attacks him with a knife. Ambrose jumps out of his clothes and runs for home in a sequence animated by Roberts. Marvin Woodard animates the ending scenes of Ambrose jumping into his bath with his mother glaring at him with her brush in hand, no doubt intended for corporal punishment. Um, the film debuted at Radio City Music Hall in New York City on April 18, 1935, with the 20th Century Fox United artist film Cardinal Richelieu. I always think of Monty Python when I think of Cardinal <laughs> <Yeah>. Richelieu. <laughs> so, 
A month after its release, Motion Picture Daily reported the Pennsylvania Censor Board withheld the film on the ground that it would have an unwholesome influence on children because it showed kittens as robbers, stick-ups, and gangsters. It debuted in Los Angeles at Groman's Chinese Theater and Lowe's State on May 2nd, 1935, also with Cardinal Richelieu. After the cartoon's general release in August 1935, it underwent a critique in its story and characterization by various staffers, including director Dave Hand. In the case of Ambrose George Drake, who was the supervisor of the Inbetweeners, and I'm reading a, a autobiography or a biography right now of um, of Iwerks, and actually another one um, of um, Ward Kimball. They there was no love lost for George Drake <laughs> um, by these two guys, and um, and anyway, they commented. Uh, George Drake commented. I think his character could have been much more successfully displayed as a little kitten boy who was basically good and wanted to do right, but whom temptations got the better of. The contrast that would have been established by such a demonstration of his makeup would have made him a lot more human. As for the villain, Bill Schull, who was an assistant director, lent a valid statement. Dirty Bill is a good character, but he had simply nothing to do in Robber in Robert Kitten. On the other hand, story artist Otto Englander stated, Dirty Bill and Robert Kitten was one of the best villains I ever saw. I wish we could use him again somewhere. And so Dirty Bill made appearances in the early Donald Duck comic book adventures drawn in England during the late 1930s as Eli Squinch's hired muscle. So the Robert the Robert Kitten influenced the 1939 Warner Brothers cartoon um, Fagin's Freshman. So Greg, Craig, uh, you've seen the Robert Kitten. So what, yeah. what do you think of it? Um, it's honestly this one was kind of a surprise for me that it popped up here because I don't see it as being a very memorable silly symphony. But that doesn't change the fact that it, it's not entertaining. So I watched it uh, recently so we could have this conversation on it. And, and it's it's good, but it's just, it's not, I, I'm still a little confused as, like, as why it would go through the treatment of being on Treasures from the Disney Vault. It, it does have, a, a I guess, a loose basis with everything else that's being shown. But to me, it's not... It, it, it doesn't highlight anything that it's like that definitely stands out is as being very special for Disney, but it, mm-hmm. it's still it's still a fun a fun short to watch for sure. It's fun. It's cute. I don't think it's no. groundbreaking in any way that no. at least I've been able to discover. And you know, but yeah, you're right. It falls in with the theme of the night. And it's one of those that, if it weren't shown, it would probably be lost, you know, in the dustbin of Disney yeah. history. And that's, like, it's, as most of the stuff that's on TCM, uh, Treasures from the Disney Vault, I'm assuming that it will be remastered. I'm, I'm At this point, excuse me for one second while I cough real quickly. Apologize for that. But, uh, like everything shown on Treasures from the Disney Vault, I... It, it should be remastered, and 
like I think all of the the silly symphonies have probably been remastered, even though they haven't been released in like remastered Blu-ray format, 4K, whatever. Uh, so, at the very least, I just appreciate that that one of these lesser lesser remembered silly symphonies is getting the full treatment even if they haven't all but again i'm pretty sure they have but uh it's it's still it's important to keep these ones in fresh in everyone's mind who who actually cares about this stuff because if we forget about it then who will remember it yeah no i agree and so and that's why i like that turner classic movies does bring out the more obscure silly symphonies and 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 the shorts you know the character shorts because otherwise you know they a lot of them have appeared on like the treasures from the you know the the treasure series yeah the tins uh, the disney treasure series and all that but you know people forget about them or they don't get around to watching them all yeah and all that so i'm glad they highlight them yeah no and that's it's a it's the perfect format to be able to do it and i i wish i i still hold out hope that if we don't get all these shorts released one day on on disney plus i i wish at some point in time they would do a treasures from the disney vault where they don't even show any of the of the movies i just wish they would show a whole bunch of shorts back to back to back to back um a lot of times they they end up being the highlights for me like i still think i think back to the first treasures from the disney vault that it was i believe december 21st of 2013 if i remember correctly and that's just off it might have been 2014 actually 2014 december 21st 2014 and I could be wrong. Could be the twentieth. It doesn't matter. Neither here nor there. But uh, it was right before Christmas, so uh, they pulled out. They pulled out two um, two shorts that that followed along with um, with the with with Christmas. I believe it was one Mickey Mouse one, and then one with uh, one of the Santa Santa Claus. I don't know why I said Sandy Claus. Mm-hmm. Channeling my inner uh, nightmare before Christmas there, uh, but they they pulled out those for it and like. That's that still sticks with me to this day. Uh, on top of the fact that they showed, they showed Third Man from the Mountain, Third Man on the Mountain, and in the in the, mm-hmm. the background, the the documentary they shot on making that movie too. So, um, I, I, point being, I love the shorts. I I could do with a full Good. night of shorts, and that would be that would be just perfect. That- that, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. Well, at 1.15 a.m., we travel to New York State to meet the North Avenue Irregulars. This is a 1979 Disney family screwball comedy directed by Bruce Bilson with a very strong ensemble cast. It's basically every television and character actor from the 1970s. You will, folks, if, you, if those of you who remember television and films from this era you're going to recognize virtually everybody in this cast so it includes edward herman as reverend michael mike hill barbara harris as mrs vicky sims now her her cb handle is kitty car uh cb was was before we had cell phones (laughs) CV radios is what people um, communicated with in trucks and cars and stuff like that. And everybody had their little handle, their name that they went by. So anyway, and that becomes important in this film. Karen Valentine is Jane. She Her handle is June Bride. Uh, 
Susan Clark is Ann Woods. She's the church secretary, and her handle is Rookie. Cloris Leachman as Claire Porter. Her uh, handle is Phantom Fox. Ruth Buzzy as Dr. Reams. And I, I she steals the last, I don't know, third of the film. And I'm not even going, I'm not going to spoil what her handle is. Michael Constantine as Marv Fogelman. He's an investigator from the Treasury Department. Carl Ballantine is Sam the Taylor. But if you're a McHale's Navy fan, you're going to recognize him as Gruber. Alan Hale Jr. It's the skipper from Gilligan's Island as Harry the Hat. Frank Campanella as Max Roca, the head of the gambling racket. And there are more. There are more from television of the 60s and 70s in this. So, um, anyway. This film was produced by Ron Miller with co-producer Tom Leach and associate producer Kevin Corcoran. Yes, Moochie was the co-producer. The screenplay is by Don Tate, and it was loosely based on Reverend Albert Fay Hill's 1968 memoir of Fighting the Mob in New Rochelle in the 1960s. The film was released as Hill's Angels in the United Kingdom. The film tells the story of Reverend Hill, played by Edward Herman, who moves to New Campton with his young son, Dean, Robbie Rolofson, who basically after the opening scene you never see again, to take over the ministry of North Avenue um, Presbyterian Church and his younger daughter, um, Carmel, uh, who's played by Melora Hardin. You see her one more time in the film. Otherwise, the children are, are pretty much invisible. He hands over responsibility for the church emergency fund to a parishioner whose husband bets it all on a horse. When Hill tries to get it back, he finds the town is full of gambling rings and the police are in on it. After seeing the Reverend's television appearance, the lecture against gambling in general and New Campton's gambling problem in particular, two U.S. Treasury Department agents approach Hill with the hope he will help them break up the ring with the right connections in town. Hill goes door to door and can't get anyone to come forward, giving him the idea that no one would suspect the sleuthing of the nice volunteer church ladies. The group's name, North Avenue Irregulars, comes from the Baker Street Irregulars, a reference to the youth of Victorian London who gathered information for Sherlock Sherlock Holmes for a small pittance. But they're a little too eager to help and make a mess of placing bets with planted tape recorders and tailing the crooks through the streets. So much goes horribly wrong that the gamblers finally decide to fight back, putting the church ladies at risk and and Minister Hill's job in jeopardy. There is a classic Disney car chase and crash sequence at the end that I found very funny. Um, The setting of the story was moved from New Rochelle, New York, to the fictional town of New Campton. Scenes were filmed on the back lot of the Walt Disney Studio and on 42 separate locations in and around the Los Angeles area, from florist shops in Burbank to alleys in Pasadena, to desert roads near Newhall to streets in Long Beach. 
more than $155,000 was paid for cars involved in the filming, 14 automobiles and one motorcycle of which were destroyed in the final scenes. And when you see this final scene, you'll understand how many, how they could all get destroyed. Uh, Like most films in the Walt Disney Studios of this era, this is a silly, entertaining, and sort of a wacky film that is a fun family film. So, Craig, have you seen this film? I have never seen this film uh, at all. So, I do know most mm-hmm. of the people who are in it. So, mm-hmm. that's, I guess oh, that's. You, a you'll up, know everybody. Yeah. You will know everybody in this film. <laughs> yeah, I, I like. I mean, obviously, I know the big ones from the that were either in popular uh, TV shows, like you mentioned, or if they worked on other mm-hmm. Disney films before. There, there's only mm-hmm. maybe like one that kind of was like I, I think I recognize you, but I'm not a hundred percent positive. But no, I've I've never seen this. But uh, as we talk about every single time we do these, I I love I don't look forward to these movies from the late 70s early 80s because of how awful they usually are but then once i start watching them i end up loving them so uh this one sounds like the right level of bonkers for me i think i think i'll enjoy watching it you are going to like this this i i i seen this in college and i recently rewatched it um i enjoyed it just as much uh, it is a hoot. Um, you know, it, it, it's just silly. It's goofy. Uh, there is a scene. <laughs> Cloris Leachman is sort of the upscale person who has her eyes on on the Reverend because there's no wife or mother involved. So we really don't know what happened to her. And Cloris Leachman thinks, hey, he's a catch. Well, she's always dressed to the nines. And there's a scene where she's rushing out of a beauty parlor. She has these long fingernails. There is this one scene where, and I want to give, I'm not want to get too many details, but it causes her fingernails to all get broken. She goes wild. She is like Cruella de Vil behind <laughs> the wheel of a car. I mean, it is hilarious. Yeah. And um, and yeah, you are you are going to recognize a lot of the, these folks from other Disney films, like Freaky Friday, the classic one. And, and yeah, uh, you know, if you were a fan of Room Two Twenty Two, there, you know, Karen Valentine was in that along with Michael Constantine. Uh, so there's there's all just it's fun yeah it's great it's definitely worth watching so um, i this was high on my list in terms of what you know like i mentioned i think last week i haven't seen a lot that or i think the only one i had seen was the moon spinners and uh definitely Mm -hmm. this one just reading it on paper it's this is this is going to be one for me for sure yeah and uh, and um, oh, I, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> what I was going to say. You said something. No, you said something that triggered a memory or something. But uh, yeah, it, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I'm sure I'll think of what I was going to say. <laughs> but anyway, all right. Next, we travel to Berlin, Germany, of the 1960s to meet Emil and the detectives at 3:15 a.m. This was Walt Disney Studios' big 1964 Christmas release and followed the 1964 release of Mary Poppins, which didn't help this film at the box office. The story for 
Emil and the Detectives is taken from a classic German children's book by author Eric Kastner. And Eric also wrote the short story some years before that Walt Disney adapted. We know that as The Parent Trap. The story of Emil was adapted for screen by Walt Disney's studio writer A.J. Carruthers, who would also write the screenplays for The Miracle of the White Stallions, Never a Dull Moment, and The Happiest Millionaire. When the film was in the initial pre-production phase, the story was updated from the 1920s of the original story to the present-day 1960s. Emil is pronounced Emil, which is explained in the animated opening credits. They actually have a, 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 a screen crawl with a phonetic instruction explaining to you how to pronounce the name. Oh, my <laughs> so, gosh. So, so look for that in an animated opening sequence. So, Can't wait. Uh, anyway, yeah. So in the film, 10-year-old... Emil is on his way to visit his grandmother in Berlin. His mother entrusts him with 400 marks to be given to his grandmother. The money attracts the attention of a thief named Grundeis, who has a well-known talent that has earned him a nickname as the Mole. The thief steals the money from Emil during the motorcoach ride to his grandmother's in Berlin. Arriving in Berlin, Emil enlists the help of a young boy named Gustav, who lends his services as a detective to track down the thief. Emil soon meets Gustav's underground syndicate of boy detectives. Soon, Gustav and his friends find that Emil's money is only a small part of a much larger crime involving a criminal mastermind accustomed to the finer things in life and a hoodlum who sort of is a parody of, I don't know, like a 1930s American gangster. Um, filming took place on location in Berlin and with many interior scenes in a tunnel um, shot at the Tempelhof studio. Hundreds of local Germans and German actors were hired to appear in the film. But all of the primary children actors were from the United States, which is sort of jarring because in the beginning, there's a, nar there's a narrator that's sort of the fourth wall there that's explaining what's going on. And then everyone else has a German accent. And suddenly you hear all these children with American accents and it was a bit sort of took you out of the film for a bit <laughs> yeah so um that you may recognize brian russell who portrays emil he had previously appeared in walt disney's 1961 film babes in toyland and he later appeared in 1967's the adventures of bullwhip griffin uh, russell also appeared in two miniseries on walt disney's wonderful world of color the first and third installments of the three-part gallagher series which aired on january 24th 1965 and february 7th 1965 and each installment of the four-part Killjoy series, which aired on successive Sunday nights between March 14th, 1965 and April 4th, 1965. I recognized him from his part as the son in the film version of Bye Bye Birdie starring, mm -hmm. you know, Paul Lynn. Yep. And because it kept bugging me, why do I know this boy? And then it all clicked with me. Oh, and Russell is not related to Disney legend Kurt Russell. That's a shame, but hey, it's yeah. a popular last name. <laughs> it is. Roger Mobley, who had starred six months 
earlier in Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color for the Love of Willadine plays Gustav. He would later go on to appear in several Disney productions, most notably the Gallagher series. But in his role of Gustav, he steals the show. Um, the Gallagher episodes were the highest rated episodes in Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. I don't remember seeing the Gallagher episodes, so I have to find those. Yeah, it doesn't and sound familiar see if to I me. did see them. Yeah. Now, Walt, um, actor Walter Slezak, who was at the time known for, for his Tony Award-winning role in Fanny, plays the lead villain and criminal mastermind, The Baron. His conversations and exhortations about his experiences living the high life, it, 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 I found it entertaining, but... I think it may be lost on younger members of the audience. Um, Heinz Schubert, who is a popular German actor, portrays the mole and launches his whole caper by stealing Emil's money. He gives a, a, a wonderful comedic performance with very little dialogue. Much of his performance is in pantomime. And, uh, and it's to the point where I was wondering if he knew English. Um, but he does. <laughs> and so um, so it, it, he was good. Uh, despite positive critical reviews praising the actors, and it was a quick story for its time, uh, maybe not for today's audiences. The film was not a financial success. Eugene Archer of the New York Times wrote that Walt Disney has come up with one of his best children's pictures, stating that Tewksbury's direction makes all the difference. He has kept the kitties from gushing too coyly, suppressed the mugging of a comic trio of thieves that are called the Skrinks. Um, he photographed the fresh Berlin setting in effective color and juxtaposed suspense and wit with a nice bouncing pace. Variety called the film an interesting project with the customary distinguishable Disney mark to give it class, but without the same appeal to adults as, say, Disney's previous Moppet classic, Mary Poppins. Philip K. Schuer of the Los Angeles Times wrote that the film falls somewhere between the Moppet trade and not-too-discriminating adults. The monthly film bulletin found it pleasantly presented, if without any distinction. Rather than being re-released to theaters, it was shown on Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color in 1966. So, um, I enjoyed this film. It's a bit slow-paced. Uh, there's a lot of chatter, a lot of discussion, mm-hmm. um, but I enjoyed it. It, it. it was interesting. It was interesting to see. I found it interesting to see Berlin because you have to keep in mind this is only 20 years after it was devastated by World War II. So I found it remarkable how well built up it was. Uh, there is a key scene that are in what the local police refer to as bombed-out ruins. So children may not understand how could this huge bombed-out building be in Berlin. And so parents might have to um, explain that, you know, probably there were buildings like this still around, you know, 20 years after the war. So uh, anyway, but but I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. The, The... the children actors were excellent. I mean, every single one of them were very good. So this is definitely a film worth watching. It's a, I mean, don't want to beat a dead horse here, but it's another one that I haven't seen before. But 
it it intrigues me. So I'm a I I love Germany. So I think at the very least I will enjoy the I will enjoy Berlin and seeing Berlin. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm but other than that I have zero expectations for it. So just just yeah. looking to sit back and see if I like it or not. Yeah. There's and there's a lot of local color again because Walt always liked to put in local culture so you definitely there there is a lot of the countryside there's a lot of cityscape uh there is a noon papa band all woman noon papa band in a restaurant uh so there's uh so there's a lot of nice uh a lot of nice little scenes like that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as well in there so to that i found interesting anyway so, does our 5 a.m. film live up to its title, Never a Dull Moment? Well, this was the first Disney film to be exclusively produced by Ron Miller, Walt Disney's son-in-law. Miller had previously been a co-producer or an associate producer for films like Moon Pilot in 1962, also Bon Voyage of the same year, 1963's Son of Flubber and Summer Magic, in 1964, The Misadventure of Merlin Jones and a Tiger Walks, in 65, The Monkey's Uncle, in 67, That Darn Cat, Lieutenant Robinson Crusoe, United States Navy and Monkeys Go Home. So he had a lot of films under his belt. And they continued to regularly produce films for the studio through the Black Cauldron in 1985. Never a Dull Moment is based on John Goatee's 1967 novel, A Thrill a Minute with Jack Albany. The film stars Dick Van Dyke as actor Jack Albany. Now, Walt Disney had selected this project for Van Dyke before his passing. Jerry Paris was hired to direct his only Disney film because he was a leading director and co-star of The Dick Van Dyke Show on television. The production team felt that he would be capable of bringing out the best performance from Van Dyke. Paris makes a brief cameo as a police officer towards the end of the film. A.J. Carruthers adapted the screenplay, his last for the Walt Disney Studio. For Van Dyke, this would be his final Disney-branded film, although he was in Touchstone's Dick Tracy in 1990 and, of course, Mary Poppins Returns in 2018. Gangster film icon Edward G. Robinson plays the head of the mob, Leo Joseph Smooth. Dorothy Provine returns to the studio one final time after a memorable role in That Darn Cat as Sally Inwood. And Slim Pickens returns to the studio after appearing in Savage Sam and several Disney television westerns. And he's Cowboy Schaefer in this film. So, in New York City, a B-list actor named Jack Albany, who's Dick Van Dyke, departs the shooting of a crime drama television show and begins to practice his lines for a soap opera filming the next day whilst walking in a dark alley. Suddenly hearing approaching footsteps, Albany appears into an adjacent building where he receives a surprisingly enthusiastic greeting from a man named Florian, played by Tony Bill, who believes that Albany is the famous gangster for whom he has been waiting, Ace Williams, who is later portrayed by Jack Elam. 
Unable to convince Florian otherwise, Albany is taken to the estate of mob boss Leo Joseph Smooth, who's Edward G. Robinson, who had recruited Williams to aid in the robbery of a new painting from the Manhattan Museum of Art. Dealing with a group of Smooth's criminal minions, in addition to Smooth's kindly art teacher, Sally Inwood, played by Dorothy Provine, who is not privy to Smooth's schemes, Albany decides to assume the biggest acting role of his career. He will pretend to be Ace Williams and hopefully thwart the robbery through improvisation. Unfortunately for all Albany, the real Ace Williams shows up, creating an awkward and potentially deadly situation. In the early scenes where Jack is acting on TV, you can see the interior walls of the Disney Studio soundstage where the scene was filmed. This film features some beautiful matte painting work to make Los Angeles and the Walt Disney Studio appear as New York City. Never a Dull Moment was released on June 26, 1968. In its original release, it was paired with the classic short The Three Little Pigs. Critics bashed the over-the-top acting and noted the lack of comedic moments. (laughs) Howard Thompson of the New York Times gave Never a Dull Moment a largely negative review, calling it good-natured, but claiming that most of it seems mighty strenuous and overworked. Thompson saved most of his praise for the cartoon that accompanied the film, Disney's Three Little Pigs, from 1933. Arthur D. Murphy of Variety called it a very amusing crime comedy, if a bit long and talky. Charles Champlin of the Los Angeles Times declared it the breeziest and most likable Disney comedy in some time, with a verve and relative sophistication which can engage the favoring interests of the grown-ups as well as the Moppets. He used the word Moppets a lot in reviews at that time. Clifford Terry of the Chicago Tribune wrote, The Disney studio comedy starts off amusingly enough, then loses its freshness in the fir- after the first half hour. But the kids probably won't notice. Oh, they don't, they're not Moppets in, in Chicago, I guess. The monthly film bulletin stated, With no pretensions to being anything but a rollicking farce, this slight but intermittently amusing comedy largely succeeds on its own modest level. It was re-released in 1977 with a re-edited version of The Three Caballeros as a featurette, and it made its television debut in 1979. So, um, you know, I think out of the lineup for the whole evening, this is probably the weakest Hmm. um, Interesting film. So... uh, uh huh. Well, this is one of my the ones that I'm looking most forward to. Probably after uh, after um, what should I call it? The goofy when uh, North Avenue regulars. Um, uh-huh. Just because I haven't I have not seen this one before. I did not realize Dick Van Dyke was in a third Disney movie. So uh, the first time that Lieutenant Robinson Crusoe came on Treasures from the Disney Vault, I didn't realize that he was in that. So. I remember Rhino kept going on and on about how he loved this Dick Van Dyke Disney movie where there was a monkey and kept just (laughs) sitting there being like, you're an idiot. You don't know what you're talking about. There's no movie like that. And then then it comes on. I'm like, oh, well, there I go. I'm shoving my foot in my mouth. 
because there's Dick Van Dyke with a monkey. And uh, so then when this obviously came up on the schedule that was that was the next surprise for me so i it, oddly enough while while dick van dyke in his in his one biography does mention lieutenant robinson crusoe and his experience uh, filming that i don't remember him saying anything about being in never a dull moment so i feel like it's uh it's also been lost from his uh his his memory so it it can't be that good if he doesn't even bother bringing it up. Yeah, you know, Edward G. Robinson, I, it's worth watching it for him. He, he's a benevolent mobster, you know. Um, he's good. It, you know, it's it's amusing, but it's, I don't know, it, it was fine. You know, I, I was surprised to see, like, who wrote the screenplay and, and all that, because I thought, you know, they... they they did a good job with some of their other films, and so I don't know. There, there was a, there's something yep. missing from this one. Is it just one uh, that it's happy that we're we're seeing it out of the vault? But if it was back in, it's not that big of an issue. You know, it, it's it's worth seeing because Dick Van Dyke is always terrific. Mm-hmm. So he's worth seeing it for that. He's definitely, uh, you know. He, he, he does his, the 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 pratfalls and stunts that he you know is famous for, you know, and and my gosh, he has long legs, <laughs> and um, you know, he does a lot of running <laughs> and things like that. So my uh, favorite, it's good. It's long good. legs and running, <laughs> yeah. So, as you know, he's evading, you know, various criminals and all that. When they finally figure out, no, things don't seem to be all right here, so. Anyway, so that's it. So that that is the full lineup of Turner Classic Movies from the Disney Vault for June 2019. So, Craig, we, we've talked about all the films. So the ones you're most excited to see well, it was the North Avenue Irregulars and, I guess, um, Never a Dull Moment. Yeah, yeah those are, those right, are the two so. that I was most excited for. And then to see... Uh, uh, those are those are definitely it for sure, and then probably to see how uh, the Robert Kitten looks when it's when it's remastered. So, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I'm looking forward to watching them all. It's always such a enjoyable evening watching Treasures from the Disney yeah. Vault, whether it's live or or after the fact. Yeah, I agree. I think I was looking forward to seeing North Avenue Regulars again, and Emil and the Detectives, and. Um, I own the Moon Spinners, so so those are probably the those are the two I was looking forward to the most, and the Littlest Horse mm-hmm. Thieves. So those are my big three. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see what um, Leonard Malton says about all of those. So. But we are going to carry on the theme of Disney films with this week in Disney history coming up next. <laughs> So, Craig, are you ready for the week of June 23rd in uh, this week in Disney history? I'm not, but I'll fake it. All right. Well, I I kept us going with, for pretty much for the most part, movies every day. So, okay. So, June 23rd, the last live-action feature film that Walt Disney saw completed before his passing on December in December 1966, is released on June 23rd, 1967. What is the name of this film? I believe it is, if I remember correctly, The Happiest Millionaire. 
That is correct. Starring Fred McMurray, Greer Garson, Tommy Steele, Britain's first pop idol, so they say. And John Davidson, in his film debut, opens in Hollywood, California. The film is based on the true story of Philadelphia millionaire Anthony J. Drexel Biddle. Very good. Okay. June 24th. Well, this this is sort of associated with films. Which sibling of Walt Disney was born on June 24th, 1893? Oh, um, well, I don't want to be that person, but I, I really, I am blanking on any of his other siblings' names. All I can really pick off is Roy O, so I'm hoping it's Roy. You're correct. He was born in Chicago, <laughs> Illinois. <laughs> Good. There we go. The mid the middle of five children, he, along with his younger brother, Walt, started what is today the Walt Disney Company. Roy guided the business side of the Walt Disney Company, leaving his brother, Walt, free to produce and create. Roy served as president of Walt Disney Productions from 1945 to 1968 and chairman of the board from 1964 until his passing in 1971. A modest man, it was Roy's idea to change the name of the Florida park from simply Disney World to Walt Disney World after the death of his brother in 1966. Married to Edna Francis in 1925, Roy was the father of Roy E. Disney. And of course, today, there is a statue of Roy O. Disney seated on a park bench beside Minnie Mouse at the Town Square area of Main Street, USA, at the Magic Kingdom in Florida, and outside the Team Disney building at Disney's corporate headquarters in Burbank, California. Roy once said, my job is to help Walt do the things he wants to do. So happy birthday, Roy. June 25th, the Walt Disney Studio releases two live-action films on June 25th, 1970. One was an installment of a popular Disney film series. The second was a film recently shown on Turner Classic Movies from the Disney Vault. Um... The only series that's really popping off at the top of my head that it could be in that any of the time period would maybe be a Herbie movie, but I couldn't tell you which one, and mm-hmm. I I genuinely don't know what else. I, I couldn't even give, okay. give a guess. Okay. You're right. Herbie Goes Bananas, starring Cloris Leachman and Harvey Corman, and the adventure film The Last Flight of Noah's Ark. Starring Elliot Gould and Ricky Schroeder. Yeah, I so wasn't going to pull that bananas. one out. <laughs> <laughs> Herbie Goes Bananas is the fourth in a series of films about a Volkswagen Beetle with a mind of its own. Loosely picks up where the 1977 Herbie Goes to Monte Carlo left off. Oh, what's funny in Emil and the Detectives that we talked about earlier. All the police cars are Volkswagen Beetles. Um, It will be the last theatrical Herbie film for 25 years until the release of Herbie Fully Loaded in 2005. The Last Flight of Noah's Ark centers on fast-living pilot Noah Duggan, Elliot Gould, who is who, due to his love of gambling, owes a large sum of money, turns to his old friend, a man of questionable character named Mr. Stoney, played by Vincent Gardenia, who sends him on a risky job to pilot a B-29 bomber plane filled with animals to an island for a new religious mission. Anyway. Well, I can't wait for next week when we talk about uh, 
When we talk about Herbie fully loaded for the entire show. Oh, oh yes, yes. So <laughs> I did. I did see. Th- I did see that when it was in theaters. Sorry. So I didn't see the um. What what when they had the installment on television? So was it was that a Lindsay Lohan vehicle? That is Herbie fully loaded. Is the Lindsay Lohan one? Oh, it is. Yeah, I thought. Okay, I had it confused with another one. Okay, no, they did a TV version where they rebooted it. That was. The I one feel I like I remember what you're talking about, but I don't. I mm-hmm. I am a fan of the Love Bug. Yes, me too. And that's about so. it. But <laughs> okay. maybe rides. Okay, June twenty sixth. Um, June 26th, a Walt Disney live-action comedy is released on June 26, 1968, starring Dick Van Dyke. Walt Disney personally selected this project for Dick Van Dyke. What is the name of the film? I'm going to go with Never a Dull Moment. <laughs> You're absolutely right. Thank you. Rewind, kids, if you want to hear all about it. <laughs> yeah, so. good call. I had to just throw yeah. that in there. Hey, it helps us trim the fat off this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. June 27th. The Walt Disney Studio released its 35th animated feature on June 27th, 1997. What is the name of the film? 97 would have been Hercules. That's right. It's officially released in the United States and Canada the same day as Disneyland's Hercules Victory Parade debuts. This, of course, is based on legendary Greek mythology hero Heracles, known in the film by his Roman name Hercules. It is directed by Ron Clements. I'm going to see the the Pacific Northwest Mouse Meat and John Musker. The all-star voice cast includes Tate Donovan as Hercules, James Wood as Hades, Susan Egan as Megara, Danny DeVito as Philoctetes. Oh, I don't know, Phil. Rip Torn as Zeus, Bobcat Goldwaith as Payne, Wayne Knight as Demetrius, and Hal Hobuck as Amphitryon. The film will earn four Annie Awards. Yep, I was... I like we, that film. We Well, I do too. I mean, it was I was 10 years old for it, so I was like... I was the demographic for it, and that's mm-hmm. on top of the fact that the music and everything in it's really, really fun. But we were—I probably told this story on the on the show before, one of them. But uh, we were, my family was on a, a vacation in New York City when the premiere was happening, and uh, so we—that's that's the first time that I saw a real celebrity like right in person beside me because uh, GI Jane um, herself, um, Demi Moore, was was standing in the Disney store buying a ton of stuff. And while we were actually asking if, if uh, there was any way, like anywhere around to get tickets for Hercules before it was coming out. So um, that's like, it's one of those memories that like, I had no idea who she was at the time, but it was, <laughs> my dad was freaking out about it, even though he didn't say anything, but yeah. So that's my Hercules story oh, that's very good <laughs> yeah i remember watching the parade uh in new york because they basically yeah. transported the main street electrical parade uh disneyland's main street electrical parade there in new york and then they put a couple uh new floats um hercules floats in front of it i would have been it, right when we were there the yeah yeah so it was cool so which on June 28th, which Disney princess re- received the 1,850th star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame on June 28th, 1987? 
I'm going to say Snow White. You're absolutely right. So, it's Snow White. And special guests attending the ceremony include animators Ward Kimball, Mark Davis, and Art Babbitt, as well as Adriana Casalotti, the original voice of Snow White. This was held directly across from Grumman's Chinese Theater. I think it was called Man's at the time. The honor coincides with Snow White's 50th anniversary. This makes her the third animated character to receive a star after Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. Would have loved are there, to have been there for that. Yeah, are there any other princesses that even have a, a star? Because that's the ad, she was the only one I could even think of. I, she's the only one I could think of. I'm yeah. trying to remember. Sleeping Beauty finally got one. So off the top of my head, I don't recall. I would have chosen Cinderella first, anyway, but that's just me. Yeah. So anyway, June 29th, actor Slim Pickens is born Louis Burton Lindley Jr. in Kingsford, California on June 29th, 1919. He was a rodeo performer and film and television actor who epitomized a profane, tough, sardonic cowboy. And he may best be remembered for his comic roles in Dr. Strangelove, 1941, and Blazing Saddles. What are Slim Pickens' Disney film credits? Oh, um, that's actually a tough one for me off the top of my head. It's it's not really coming to me. I mean, obviously, I think anytime I think of Slim Pickens, the first thing I do think of is Dr. Strangelove with him just straddling that, uh, straddling mm-hmm. the atomic bomb as he's riding it down, just hooting and hollering. And then I, I love Blazing Saddles. It's, I know it is so yeah. inappropriate, but, um, it's it is so funny. Um, it is funny. Uh, he said Doctor Strangelove. Doctor Strangelove was the turning point in his career. Yeah, I can understand that um, for mm-hmm. sure. Uh, I am. I, if I can remember correctly, well, first off, I'm going to go back. I I know we talked about him. He is in Never a Dull Moment. So, um, and then he's in the Apple Dumpling Gang, right? Yes, he is. Okay. And beyond that, I I couldn't tell you. Okay. Okay. Well, he was in The Great Locomotive Chase and Was Tonka. he really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Why am I not re- I and, mean, I've only seen it once, but I am not remembering a minute. Uh, yeah. And how could you forget this? He was the voice of Bob, B.O.B., in The Black Hole. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah. He also appeared in two um, Walt Disney television serials, The Swamp Fox and Daniel Boone. I feel really dumb. I just, I don't think I just connected it all together, but, huh, yeah. that's that's wild. Yeah, yeah, so he had, a, he had quite a career with, with um, the Walt Disney Studio. Damn. So you did pretty well. Well... If you missed any of these films um, or your DVR is too full to record all the films we talked about for Turner Classic Movies from the Disney Vault, the June 2019 edition, many are available on home video, various streaming services, and YouTube. So for references for this episode, I used the Disney films by Leonard Malton, Walt Disney Silly Symphonies, a companion to the classic cartoon series by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman, websites included the Disney films 
Films, the Disney Wiki, Cartoon Research, the Mouse for Less.com, Turner Classic Movies. And that's about it. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Well, before I let you know, uh, I have to update us because I don't remember if we talked about it last week. I know. I don't think I looked it up until after we were done recording. But we, we did post the question, how long will Treasures from the Disney Vault last? And will oh, could yes. this be the last one? Well, it's not. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, really? Yes. the The next one will be on September second. So, and it will include uh, such stuff as Fun and Fancy Free, Donald's Tire Trouble, The Love Bug, Happiest Millionaire, The Art of Skiing, Snowball Express, The Hockey Champ, and The Misadventures of Merlin Jones. So, uh, that's oh. that answers that question. We have at least one more, and then. Disney Plus launches in November. So I guess we'll have to see if one pops up in uh, September, October. Yeah, it would maybe be mid-November, late November, or or sometime in December. So that will be the that will be the true test for us. Will it will it last after this one? But only time right. will tell. Yeah, that's what we were yeah. wondering about. Yeah. Yeah. So did, did they do the Happiest Millionaire already? I believe they have, and I, I think we talked about it. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think it was like two or three ago. It's not the first time that they've had a repeat now, um, but I don't think they've had. I mean, I'd have to go back. I keep all of like the the graphics that they create for it and like the PDFs of the mm-hmm. schedule, so I always have that for me to know what I watched when I watched it. Um, so I Happiest Millionaire they definitely have had before, and I they they have they've repeated shorts before. I don't think they've repeated full length uh, full length movies though. So that's that's interesting on it. Um, I'm sure they have a reason for it, but and then like plain fun and fancy free. I think that's great, but it's it's widely available on on blu-ray and for release so it seems like kind of a weird one to pull out but um hey you know what it is it is what it is we're still going to probably talk about it anyways so oh yeah uh, but yeah absolutely yeah so september 2nd but in the meantime if you would like to connect with me further uh you can always watch me on either the walt disney world edition podcast the disneyland edition podcast uh, the best and worst of walt disney world and uh, connecting with walt in universal edition podcast and you know all the normal places and then always uh on facebook twitter and instagram at teleclash what about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, Michael Bowling. The Connecting with Walt Banner is the one you want. Instagram, Michael Bowling that is. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.